Hi, welcome to NDE TV. I'm Peggy Robinson. Today's guest is Barbara Bartolome. Thank you. <laughs> it sounds like music too. Bartolome. Bartolome. <laughs> and her and I were just having the best discussion about how similar our paths have been. So, Barbara. Um, I've watched some of your videos. I know you're not shy, so I'm going to let you start wherever you want. Okay, well, I've got a story. I tell you, I, I feel like um, my life has been an amazing, really amazing experience. And I, I grew up in Salem, Oregon, and I had a, my mom became a police officer when I was in my teens. And, you know, she would, I had a little sister that I kind of watched over and she ended up being six foot three. So she's not my little sister. She's my big sister now. But um, we had some uh, older step siblings that we also had in our family. And um, then, then what ended up happening was that I moved down to Santa Barbara when I was in my late twenties. And I, um, ended up marrying someone who was from this area and he was an engineer and uh, we had a house in, in this area that he owned previous to marrying me. And we ended up, um, you know, having this life that was pretty, pretty well, pretty good, except for the fact that behind closed doors, there was a lot of abuse going on and he had a lot of anger problems. Um, he, I think it drew from his childhood. I think that his father created situations for him that, you know, spilled over into his adult life. And his older siblings told me that as well, that that was the reason why he was a problem. And uh, I tried really hard for about seven years to help him to change, to help him to see what his issues were. He would always you know, have an explosion and sometimes hit me, kick me, push me, shove me, hit, kick me on the floor, you know, just all these abuse things. Um, and then he would apologize profusely and say, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. I'm so sorry. And, you know, want to take me out to dinner or something. It was a typical abuse situation. Um, so what ended up My ex never said he was sorry. <laughs> Oh, really? Um, he said, you made me do it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, mine would always be, I'm sorry, but, you know, and then the next time would roll around and he'd be sorry again. So um, I tried to do everything. I'd try to take him to a pastor of a church and get him some counseling. And I, you know, written him a long letter that said how I felt about it and early on in the marriage. And, you know, I talked to him a lot and said, you know, you can't do this. You just, I'm going to leave. You can't, I'm not going to live with this. And, um, you know, other than that, I, I loved him very much. And so it was very hard for me um, trying to change him, um, took him to a marriage family therapist, and he rejected that after three or four Because you had sessions. kids together, right? We, we had, um, yeah, well, I had a son from my previous marriage, and he had a daughter from his previous marriage, but she lived with her mom. And so my son was about, um, when I had my near-death experience, he was about eight years old, and I'd had a baby with my husband. Um, and she was about five months old. And so right after the baby was born in July of 1987, I was um, inside the home and I'd had a problem pregnancy because of something he had done. I almost lost the baby. And um, so I had been on bed rest for about the last half of the pregnancy and I couldn't work. And he was angry about that. And um, wait a minute, wait a yeah. minute. 
he caused yeah. you to lose a baby almost caught yeah he, he basically yeah he basically raped me in about the third month and ruptured the placenta oh and uh, he was so forceful and so uh aggressive and so and it was not normal behavior and uh so I ended up um, having to be on bed rest and uh, not I'm be able so to work sorry. the rest of the pregnancy. It was very scary. The interesting thing was that before I got pregnant and while I was still having trouble with him, you know, before, before it happened, I saw my little girl in the, my future. I actually was looking through a book on photographs for of children. And I'm a, I, I, at the time was doing a lot of photography for nonprofits. Um, in Santa Barbara where I was living and I was volunteering to do a lot of photography and so I was looking through this photography book and I came upon this one page and it just stopped me dead in my tracks and I looked at the picture and it was a little girl and she had her hands like this and she was in the grass and she had flowers and grass and daisies around her and I just I looked at her and she had brown eyes and she had red hair and I just I went, oh my God, that's exactly what my daughter's going to look like. It looked like she was looking at me that she was my daughter. And I was really freaked out about that. It was like, oh, and I didn't tell anybody. And, and uh, so then my, my daughter was born um, in July of 1987. She did have red hair and she had brown eyes. And uh, I felt her before, you know, when I was pregnant with her, I felt who she was. It's funny. Me. When I was pregnant for my first child at four months, I had a dream. It was a boy. And after that, I told everybody it's a boy. And this is before ultrasounds, you know, because it was yeah, before 1980. Yeah. I said, oh, you don't know us. Yes, I do. And it yep. was a boy. Yep. It's, you, you know. Who he had a third are. eye. <laughs> yep. yep. You can kind of feel who they are inside there. And so um, after she was born, about a month later, um, I got called. I heard him calling me out onto our patio. And it's the cement patio. And he was standing by these five bags of cement that were um, in, you know, not used yet. They were ready to be used for some project. Now this is after the miscarriage of the after, third child. All, all, well, second child, it was my second child and my daughter with him. And I didn't miscarry her. I carried her to term. She was born. And a month later, um, he was outside on the patio calling me to come outside. And she was perfectly fine. There was no problems with her health. I had so had the miscarriage was between those two then? Um, I didn't have a miscarriage at all. I actually. Oh, I'm sorry. They saved the baby. Yeah. They, <gasps> oh, thank I, God. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. I missed that. Yeah. The placenta ruptured. What happened was kind of interesting because the doctors were saying that I needed to do um, um, an abortion. Basically, they were going to abort the baby. And I was saying, no, 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 I, no, I'm not going to do that. And I was crying and everything. And um, this other doctor came in the room at the time when I was, you know, being examined for this situation that had occurred by him. And um, he told the doctors very, the other two doctors very quietly, well, in 5% of the cases like this, the placenta reheals itself and the pregnancy goes to term. And I heard him say that, and I was sitting on the table crying, and I stopped and I said, you have got to let me try. That's going to be me. I need to have that miracle happen. Yes. Don't, don't try to make me abort this baby. And so they were really mad. The other two doctors were really mad that this other younger doctor said that. But in fact, it is exactly what happened. I, um, the, the placenta resealed itself. The pregnancy went on. I was on bed rest. Oh, I couldn't work. Okay. I went all the way to term. She was born 
on her due date on July 11th, 1987. Okay. And so here's this little redheaded, brown-eyed, cute little sweetheart baby. And a month later, I'm, I'm called outside of this patio. <clears throat> he has these bags of cement piled up on these two boards. And he has a big two by four sticking underneath all the bags of cement. He's got that on his shoulder and it's like he's lifting and pushing against it. And he goes, come over here, I need help. And I said, well, what, I, what, what do you, I, I can't help you with that. And he said, I said, get over here. And so I kind of stepped closer and he grabbed my arm, pulled me over underneath the two by four and then removed his shoulder away from it so that all the weight of those bags of cement that he had been holding on his shoulder came down on my shoulder really abruptly and it blew out a disc in my lower back. My L5 S1 disc just went pop and it just blew out and I screamed bloody murder. They could have probably heard me in China and I crumpled to the ground and I couldn't walk and I ended up having to go to a doctor, of course, and I had, had, had to have a friend come over and drive me to take me to the doctor. And he basically told me initially that I would never walk again, that there, this couldn't be fixed. And so I was like, I'm 31 years old. I have two children. I'm not this, not. And so friends of mine said, no, go to this neurosurgeon. So I then took all the x-rays and CAT scans that they'd done and everything went to a neurosurgeon. And the neurosurgeon said, I can fix this. So he arranged for an orthopedic surgeon and himself to do surgery on a day in December of 1987. And the day that that was gonna happen, um, they had me come into the hospital the day before in the afternoon, and they wanted to do one more test to see if my spinal cord had been damaged when the disc burst they thought maybe a chip of that disc had hit the spinal cord and chipped it so that I was losing my spinal fluid. So they wanted to verify that because they were going to need to fix that the next day in the surgery if that was the case. You was at so risk they, of not walking, correct? I wasn't walking. Oh my gosh, I wasn't walking. It was really, I, I was so traumatized. It was terrible. And my husband was totally dismissive of the whole thing and, uh, you know, didn't help me, didn't bring me food or anything. I, my son, my eight-year-old son was my hero, my angel, and he brought me food and water and, you know, I was in bed and it, it was terrible. I just so, want to say right now, if anybody's listening, they're in a, in a relationship like this, get out. Get out. Because it gets worse. Get out. And there's a lot of women in graves that didn't get out, that thought it wouldn't exactly. get to this. Get out. Get brave enough. Get brave enough. Find a way. Find someone who will help you get out. That's the, that's the bottom line that I And do it safely. Yep. Yeah. In my situation, my near-death experience is what got me out of there. And so what ended up happening was that during that myelogram, there was uh, an error made by the x-ray tech. And instead of tipping the table so that my head would be raised and my feet would be lowered so that the dye could run down my spinal cord and they could x-ray the area where the chip had, they thought the chip had gone through my spinal cord. He lowered my head and raised my feet. And so the dye that had just been injected into the back of my neck went into my brain within seconds. And I, felt funny and I was laying there on the table and nobody was noticing it. And I was not interrupting anybody because they were having conversations. The doctor and the neurosurgeon were talking and then the two x-ray techs were talking and I didn't want to like, hello, uh, something's wrong. And so um, and I didn't realize what was wrong. I thought 
maybe that I'm supposed to feel like this. And so I, I didn't open my mouth and say anything. And by the time that I realized, you know what, this is this can't be right. I've got to say something. I couldn't, I couldn't actually speak. So my brain was malfunctioning to the point where I couldn't open my mouth to talk and I couldn't remove my hand to touch them to say, hey, you know, excuse me, something's wrong. So that made me really panicked at the time. And I was laying on the extra table just completely in this, oh my God, what's going on? Fear. And um, I started- There, there um, again, there again. Yeah, you stop um, and think about it. You didn't speak up. No abuse. And laying there and you know something's wrong women need to get a voice yep yep that was part speak of it up. even like a medical it. thing like yep. that we just don't speak up we're supposed to be good little girls yep yep well i you know i'd been trained as a young person to be very bold brave and strong and and powerful because my mom had been you know become police officer and you know, then when I got into the situation where I was married to this person, I lost all of that. And I got to the point where I didn't speak up about anything. I was just really, really afraid of everything. And it's a real big change. It was a huge change in my life. And what ended up happening was that the doctors um, ended up being, you know, not focusing on this situation. And I started hyperventilating. The last thing that I did before I died was I lost my capacity to breathe correctly. And I was going, <laughs> and my eyes were rolling to the back of my head. And that's what alerted the x-ray tech who was standing right next to the table. He was had his finger on the button. He was the one who made the mistake. And he leaned over my body and looked at my face. And I was rolling, eyes rolling backwards and you know breathing. And um, he then reached his body backwards and looked to see where his thumb was and then his face was just like oh my god and he just made this face like oh no and then that was it I literally just stopped right then and then I was out of my body and I was up on the ceiling looking down at my body and very calm up there and I looked down and I said huh if I'm up here and my body is down there and that man is calling code blue. I think I just died. And it was such a beautiful feeling up there. It had been panic and scared and terrible down below. But then now I was wrapped in what felt like a beautiful blanket of warmth and love and acceptance. And I just, I just felt fine up there. And I felt this presence that was next to me and I felt like I knew that presence from before I ever came onto the earth. It was just this long attachment to this beautiful being and it felt so eternal. And I began talking in up there out of my body. I began talking to the being and I was very calm. And I said, I really need to go back into my life. If I leave my children in this way at this time, they won't grow up to be the good human beings that they're capable of being because they will be left with my husband who will not um, take care of them or they will be abused. They will be traumatized. And I said, I need to go back to continue to protect them. And so I said that during the time that they were doing all this stuff, they brought in an oxygen cart, they put an oxygen mask on my face. They were doing CPR before that. 
Um, they continued to do the chest compressions even after the oxygen cart came in. This man came in and he brought in a box and it was a heart monitor, but I didn't know what it was. And I was calmly talking to this being saying how much I wanted to go back. And I watched him putting these white, little round white things. He was peeling the backs of them off and he was putting them on my chest in different places. And I didn't know what he was doing. This man was putting a heart monitor on me and I had never seen one. And I stopped kind of asking God, you know, to go back. And I said, what is that he's doing? I understand what everybody else, but what's that? And I was immediately moved down right in front of the heart monitor so that my consciousness, instead of being on the ceiling right above my body, was now in front of the heart monitor, which was on this ledge between the table against the wall on the wall. And the man was standing between that ledge and the table that I was laying on. And um, he reached over, the man did. And when he was done putting those circles on me, he did this little toggle switch and he clicked it up. And I saw this green dot appear in this square little box, this rectangular box, and it started going straight across in a line. And the machine started making this sound beep. Well, I still didn't know what it was. And I watched it go all the way across and it started again and it went all the way across a second time. And I still didn't know what it was. And the third time it started to go across about a third of the way, all of a sudden I went, oh, that's a heart monitor. It's supposed to be going up and down. My heart stopped. And the second that I thought that and I rec recognized that, then I was put back up on the ceiling again next to the being. And I continued to have my experience of looking down at my body at all the things that they were doing. And um, about, I would say, eight minutes into the situation, um, the neurosurgeon said to the orthopedic surgeon, too much time has passed. She's going to be brain dead. We need to do something. And the orthopedic surgeon said, stand clear. And the people that were around the chest area and my head area of the table, they stepped back and got out of his way. <clears throat> and he stepped two steps forward and he took his fist from behind his back and he just went wham. And he just did what's called a precardial thump. I had never heard of that before, but he smacked his fist into my chest because they hadn't been able to get the defib unit into the room yet. And that's a last ditch effort that they use to restart a heart. It blow, this blow to the heart shocks the area and shocks the heart, I guess. And then sometimes it will restart. Very few times does it restart. I've heard it's very, very useless kind of last ditch effort. <clears throat> so right when he struck my chest, then the being then that I'd been talking to then said to me, but if you go back, you'll still be in your marriage. What will you do? And showed me all these little film clips that just went flash, 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 across my vision. And it was all these incidents that had happened in my seven years of marriage that were all these abuse incidents to remind me of all I'd been going through. And then I was given time to evaluate um, what I wanted to do. And I evaluated all the things that I had done to try to help my husband to change. And finally, I said to the being, if you let me go back, I promise you I'll get strong enough to leave him. And the second I said the word him, the doctor did a second precardial thump, smacked my chest a second time, and my heart restarted and my eyes shut from up on the ceiling and I opened my eyes and I had the oxygen mask on my face and I was back in my body. Was it the nurse so, told him not to do that? 
Like you'd have brain damage or something? The doctor said that the, okay. the doctor's neurosurgeon said to the orthopedic surgeon that too much time had passed while I was flatlining and that I was going to be brain dead. So, um, you know, that's when the orthopedic surgeon went into action and did the two precardial thumps and restarted my heart. And I talked into the oxygen mask immediately after I came back into my body and said, what just happened? And the nurse then leaned over me and said, stop, don't talk. We need to stabilize you. And so for 20 minutes or so, they did whatever they had to do. And then they finally took the oxygen mask off and everybody was waiting to see what I was going to say, because I said, you know, and I said, oh my God, what just happened? I was up on the ceiling. I'd never heard of the near death experience. I'd never heard of going out of your body. Yeah, it's 1987. No, that was 86. Nope, nope. Nobody talked about that stuff. It was, that was like, no way. No, no, never, never (laughs) heard of anything like that. And so I said, I was just up on the ceiling and I could see and hear everything. And the neurosurgeon went, oh, brother. And then that caused me to say, no, she was on the phone over there calling for the defib unit saying stat and it didn't come in. And then that lady brought in the oxygen card. And then that man came in with the heart monitor and connected it up to me. And I was flatlining. I saw my flatline. And then these two guys were doing CPR. And then you said to him, and I told him everything that all these things that had happened. And while I was saying all that, he clenched his fist, the neurosurgeon, <coughs> excuse me, he clenched his fist and he pulled him up tight against his body and he went, I'm not going to stand here and listen to this. And then he stormed out of the room. But everybody else stayed. That's professional. <laughs> not really. The orthopedic surgeon took my hand and he said, how did you feel? What, what, tell me again what you saw. What did it feel like? Tell me. And so all the people were in there like, you know, watching and listening. And then they put me on a gurney and they said, they're going to send me up to my room to prepare for surgery for the next day. And they, that was just a test (laughs) from that day, from that moment on, nobody in the hospital would talk to me about it. When I would say, what was that? What was that? What, what happened to me down there in the myelogram? What happened? And the nurses would look at the little chart and say, well, I don't see anything here. I don't know what you're talking about. So they go, Doctor's not going to write. I goofed. <laughs> no, really. She yeah, really. Exactly. No one wanted to admit that. They didn't want a lawsuit. I didn't sue anybody. I, I didn't have, you know, support system or anything in there. When I told my husband the next day after the surgery occurred and I was in the recovery area, my husband came in, that, that, that husband at that time, and he came in and I said, this is what happened last night. And I told him and he went, oh, that couldn't have happened. You probably hallucinated that. Well, I never did drugs. I don't drink alcohol. I never did. I'm like, you know, the cleanest kid you ever saw because my mom was a cop. She used to tell me she was going to shoot my butt off if I did anything wrong. So I was like, okay, I will not do anything wrong. So I, I was like hallucinating. I wasn't even under any anesthesia. What are you talking about? I'm going to assume that when you almost lost your daughter because of him, I'm going to assume you covered that up and didn't tell the hospital that was on purpose. But yet this you made up like you're so attention seeking. (laughs) I didn't tell those doctors that were involved with my daughter at all that that uh, that was what, what what had happened to me back when she was born. I was like, no, I, after she was born, you know, I just know when then when all that happened, I, I, I always kept it to myself and I didn't even tell my mom or anything because I didn't want my mom to react because my mom had one time um, she had grabbed my husband 
um, at the at his neck like this, and she held his head up like this, and she said, "If I ever hear you say anything like that again, I'm going to clean the floor up with you." And my mom was a powerful, like five foot ten, you know, just a strong woman, and you know, I was afraid, kind of afraid to tell her too, because I was afraid that she might come down and try to do something and it might cause her life to, you know, be upended. I'd chosen to be in that marriage and I hadn't, you know, hadn't left it yet. And I didn't want her having to have repercussions for what I had done with my decisions in my life. So it ended up that, uh, you know, I got my, my, heart was restarted and I was back in my body and I got the surgery the next morning. They went ahead and did it anyway. And it was a laminectomy discectomy on my L5 S1 vertebrae, which was, the, was where the disc had blown out. And they cleaned up all the disc fragments and my spinal cord hadn't been chipped. And so I had a long recovery. And of course, my eight-year-old son was again my hero through that whole time and helped me with everything. And people from a church that I attended also came over and helped me with a lot of stuff. So um, then I knew that I had promised what I thought was, you know, God, that I would leave him. And it, it weighed on me heavily. I knew that I needed to get away. I just didn't know how. And so I was afraid still of him because his behaviors were that I thought maybe he might want to kill me for the insurance money that he had on me. And so I just did everything I could to try to please him and do everything that he needed to. But in the time that I was doing that, I was putting away my very favorite personal things that I loved that I didn't want him to take and try to hold against me like he had done before. And so I ended up waiting and um, he ended up going on a business trip to Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And the day that he got on the plane to fly away, I took him to the airport and I turned around and I had looked in the newspaper for an apartment and went and I found an apartment and I moved out that same day that he moved and that he flew away to Montreal, Quebec, Canada and um, filed a restraining order against him with the court and um, you know, ended up being able to get away safely. And that was you know, the big change in my life, that MDE helped save me from the situation that I was in. And I think that it was planted in my life for it to happen because I see the outcomes of, of what happened after that. And it is, you know, it was life-changing in more ways than one, obviously. And that's a good idea to do that while they're gone for a while. Yeah. 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 My that husband was, was in the shower, my ex. <laughs> and I grabbed the boys because I had just called the sheriff because he had me slammed against the wall and stuff. And then he went and got a shower. And then he says, Ann, you are going on the boat. Me and the kids are going on the boat with him, you know, see fireworks. And, and so anyway, so he, he's in the shower. He's like, come on, boys, hurry up, you know, get in the van. Never done this before. He come out on the porch, start naked, broad daylight, oh, wow. in front of our children, preteen boys. <laughs> he says something told him when he was taking a shower. One time he gets a voice from God. <laughs> and it had to be <laughs> Peggy's about to You're leaving. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. How much is that? your buck naked. Oh. Boys, get back in the house. But sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. It's just like oh. the similarities no, of you and I is just unreal. Yeah, the people that um, are out there that make these kind of decisions to act in these ways, you know, I don't understand at all. I can't comprehend the behaviors of some people, but um, I know that 
in my life when I choose to choose good people around me and surround myself with, um, you know, th that's kind of the story that you also wanted me to tell was that after I got divorced, um, I was afraid to date anybody. I didn't want anybody in my life because I didn't want to choose poorly again. And so um, I then started a list of character traits and I would add the character traits that I could think of, you know, courage and friendliness and uh, patience and acceptance and kindness and love and generosity of spirit and the different things that I would want in the person that I was around. And um, I thought of all the negatives of my ex-husband and I would put the opposites of them. I would not put anything down that was negative. I didn't put down, you know, isn't abusive. I would put down instead is patient or is caring or concerned or kind or whatever. And so um, I was adding this list up as I went along and I wasn't dating. And so about um, every, every evening when I would look at the list and I would think about people I'd seen during the day or things where I'd realized, oh, I, I haven't added this to the list yet. And I would add it, then I would, before I go to sleep, I would say, God, I, I don't know who this person is that I'm writing about, but I know that you know who it is. So if you could help that person to come and find me in a safe way at the right timing for both them and for me, if you could bring them to me, then I'd be so appreciative. Thank you so much. And then I would go to sleep. Well, I'm sorry. That. I'm just laughing how sweet you are. Oh, well, for two years, I like sat there and did that. And I meant it. I meant it. I knew I didn't know who these, you know, guys can look really nice and wonderful right. and they can look like they're, you know, balanced and normal. And then they can be the psycho people that they are. And there's a lot of women that are like that too. So I'm not sure, you know, how to tell. Yeah. I mean, it's not our fault if we're a bad judge of character. I mean, we're trusting. I know. exactly. <laughs> so God's going to help us out. <laughs> I was just like, please God, because I'm not a clue. So then two years later, I um, had a Saturday and, and I was in my apartment with my kids and my son was out riding his bike around the neighborhood. And uh, he came back and he had this girl that he had and he said, this is Erin and she lives close by just half a block away and we go to school together. I know we're at school and um, we both want to go see a movie together. Um, would you take us? And so I said, you know, I ended up saying, okay. And then they said to come over and get them at her house which was just right around the corner. So I came around the corner and I ended up knocking on the door and uh, the door opened and this seven foot tall guy opens up the door and I'm like, okay, my sister is six foot three. She, I knew she, everybody that's tall hates to be asked, how tall are you? Or, oh, did you play basketball? I mean, that's always the question that my husband gets all the constant time. And so I was like, hi, I'm Scott's mom and I'm here to pick up um, Scott and Aaron to take them to the movie. And he looked down at me and he said, well, they asked me to take them to the movie. And I realized immediately what they were doing. They were putting us together. And I was so totally freaked out that I was trying not to react to that. And I said, well, it, you know, that's great. Um, why don't you go ahead and take them to the movie and I'll, I'll just go back home again. And, and then Scott and Aaron came out from around the corner and they said, no, no, mom, you have to go too. And Aaron said, yeah, you have to go. And dad, you have to go. And they made us sit next to each other. 
<laughs> and six months later, after I had kind of like looked at my list of things and gone pumpkin shopping with them, and you know, we put our two families together to do things because he had a boy and a girl, and I had a boy and a girl. And um, I was able to see all of the character traits that um, were on my list in this wonderful guy. And we got married six months later, and now it's been 29 years. And he's still that same guy, had 206 things written down. <laughs> including must be tall and he definitely at seven foot really you tall. had that down too that's cool <laughs> i had and he was be a tall. basketball player though isn't he wasn't he yeah he played for golden state warriors and overseas in europe and he's retired from there and he worked 36 years for the university of california santa barbara and i also ended up working there for six years in the graduate school of education so we both are big gaucho supporters we love our ucsb gauchos here in santa barbara so um yeah we had an amazing thing but you know it was really funny after i had my near-death experience i didn't want to tell anybody in my family or anybody else because i didn't like know how to put it into perspective and i didn't know that 1987 you know nobody's talking about it and i didn't want anybody to think i was crazy and so i i just kept quiet about it for about 12 years and it was a a nurse at the local hospital who was a friend of mine and we were sitting at gymnastics practice for my little daughter and she was now you know 12 years old 12 and a half and um <clears throat> we were the nurse and i were talking and she was telling me that her mom was passing away and imminently going to die and i felt the need to tell her about my near-death experience because i wanted her to understand that once I died, it was a beautiful experience. I knew that it was so incredible that if she, it would make her feel better about her mom's passing. So I asked her if I could tell her the story and she said, yes. So I told her and then she was the one who told me that it was called a near-death experience. I had never heard the term in all my time, those 12 years, I didn't know that was year what it was, was called. Um, it would have been 12 years after 1987. Oh, okay. so 1999 it would have been okay. 1999 yeah so um by then the internet had come up and so i was able to you know do research and look and i found the near-death experience research foundation which is run by dr jeffrey long and i initially connected with him first before i found ians which is international association of near-death studies and so i actually ended up going to a conference i think it was in um 2007, I think, I went to an IONS conference in San Diego, and I ended up um, getting to meet other experiencers that had had, you know, what I'd had, and there were like 50 of them there. We all sat in a huge circle, and we all had like, we were given, we were supposed to do five minutes, but of course, everybody went way over that, so we were there for hours listening to everyone's near-death experiences, and it was really impacting and beautiful because it, I, I saw so much that was matched with what had happened to me. There were other variables that happened to different people and some were by suicide, some were by car accidents, some were by, you know, some sort of medical error like mine, some was, you know, maybe a heart attack or whatever, but they all had similarities amongst what had happened to the different people and how they felt about their experiences. So it just totally sucked me into the NDE world. And, and you ended up starting I, your own group, didn't you? Your own IONS yes. group? 
Yes, so I have the IMS group in Santa Barbara, California, and I've been doing it for about 10 years. I have a great support system, a, a wonderful doctor, Jim, Jim Quacko here in town, who is on my board of directors and a wonderful past life regression therapist, Dr. Peter Wright. And, you know, just, I just have the best people that are supporting me. And I've done grand rounds talks at hospitals and I've talked at churches and I've traveled to other IONS groups and talked and podcasts. And I was on the NBC Today show and US News and World Report did a great article about my NDE. And, you know, it, now it's all validated. But back then when it happened, <laughs> I had no idea what was going on. And how about you? Did you did you know what it was when it first happened to you? Oh, no way. No way at all. I thought as soon as I come back from mine in the hospital, I thought, what the hell was that? And I thought it never happened to anybody in the history of the world. I remember exact words, exactly that. This has never happened to anybody in the history of the world. Yep. Yep. And then yep. it was months later and Oprah was new at the time. And she had people on talking about it. And I scoffed at that TV like I never scoffed anything. Oh, what liars. How stupid do they think people are? And I rolled my eyes, took a step back to head into the kitchen to start dinner. Something stopped me in my tracks. And I'm like, what am I feeling? Why does it sound so familiar? And I allowed myself to, like, to bring it forward in my head like it was real. That was real. So that night I told my ex, now ex, I sat him down after supper, sent the boys to the room, I said, I talked to your dad. And he said, he sat there and listened. And he said, I know how it sounds, but I know you. And I know you're telling me the truth. Isn't that beautiful? That's, a, that's actually a good response because most people yeah. are like, what? You know? So, yeah, it, that's, that, that's a good response. We, but not until all... internet, you know, years later, like you, not until we got the internet. And um, uh, first place you wrote yours, I believe, same place I wrote mine, was um, Dr. Jeffrey Long's website, yep. NDRF, um, yep. Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. When I found it, because I just looked it up, looked up near-death experience. I'm thinking, I just learned this word. Now, what do they call it? I'm going to look that up. As soon as I found it and it said, submit your story, <laughs> I yeah. typed it so fast and hit submit. And I didn't spell check. I'm doing nothing. I couldn't <laughs> wait. And I'm like, there, I did it. I thought that was, it's over. I did it. Thank you. know, God, look, God, I did it. Like, I was supposed to tell the world or something. Like, I did it. I thought that was done. It was just the beginning. <laughs> That's that was just the beginning. You're right. I didn't want to put all the details of mine into what I wrote to Dr. Jeffrey Long the initial time because I was still scared about talking about the abuse, about the husband, about, you know, all that, you know, him raping me in the third month of the pregnancy. I didn't want to talk about all that. Right. It was so personal. And I also, I always worried that my daughter would find it and then see that about her dad. Right. And that, that would somehow wreck our relationship because I was telling the truth about her father. But it turned out lovely that um, as she got older and I didn't talk negatively about her dad, um, she started seeing all the patterns that I had seen in the in my time with him and um, she now no longer really has much connection with him and um, she you know sees the behaviors that are not okay so um, 
You know, I think it's important for all of us to admit that people have problems and if they are deep enough problems, if they are, you know, affecting others in, in such negative ways and, and risking other people's lives that it's super important to step out of that and to find the strength. And even if you don't have what you're gonna, what you had around you, if maybe you had a house and you had, you know, expensive stuff, it's, that's not important. What is important is your safety your children's safety, your health, your welfare, you know, it, it just really is important for everybody to get away that it's in a damaging situation like that. I, I can't say that enough. I was one of those mothers too. I didn't want my boys to hear anything bad about their dad. I wanted them to have the best childhood possible. I wanted to shield them. They never seen me cry. They never seen me upset. Um, I, I sheltered them from everything. And, um, as you know, once they were adults and I would start to say something a little, I know they weren't comfortable because my ex, he comes to this big Catholic family, you know, there's 12 kids, there's, and you were a small town, you know, they've got a lot of pride in their last name. Mm -hmm. And when I wrote my book, I just sat down one day, it's come to me, I wrote down three months and, um, then, um, someone at, uh, Ian's group talked to me about publishing and told me about their publisher and so it was um thanksgiving and i just finished writing my book and um i just started talking to the publisher and he was gonna look it over and it was thanksgiving it was at one of my son's house and i haven't talked about this before but um we were all my son he lives in a beautiful home and we we're sitting in a big nice dining room and the kids were in the kitchen and the adults was in this beautiful dining room and um he's it's thanksgiving dinner you know and I mentioned my book and I'm feeling so much pride and triumph in my life about this book. And I mention it and I don't even say much about it. And one of my sons said, you're going to get sued. Oh, and they all got up and walked in the other room and left me alone. Oh no. And I sat there alone at the Thanksgiving table. And my son had just said, you're going to get sued. And I thought, this is their family. Do I have the right? Is this wrong? That's abuse. It's the same as the other abuse. That's, you know, the family. And, and, and I mean, this is my sons, you know, and I, but in my heart, my heart belonged to God first and foremost. And I knew this book was right. I knew it was true. And I knew it would help people maybe in abusive situations and child abuse situations and help people understand, yes, all this bad stuff may happen, but there, but when you have a miracle, stop and recognize it and like, hold it up and praise it. Don't wash it away. Don't push it away with the abuse. And I didn't know at the time, but I guess it's common in abuse situations to have an out-of-body experience because mm. I had that during, you know, 16 kidnap and rape and a body experience. And I didn't know, is that a spiritual experience? Is that something all abused people happens, abused kids or, you know, women during rape. And, you know, I just, I didn't, when I wrote my book, something told me don't analyze it. Don't wonder how this happened. Just write it. Just tell the truth. So I just started beginning and went, you, did you write a book? I'm writing it right now. I've been a little bit distracted because my husband's been through some, my current husband, my wonderful seven foot tall guy, 
has been through some medical stuff. And actually, we just had this incredible miracle that I want to talk to people about. But the book is, um, I'm naming it my The Amazing Life of a Double Dead Redhead. And I haven't <laughs> talked about my other NDE. Advice. So um, I, um, I, ended, I ended up finding out when I was 55 years old, I'm 65 now, but when I was 55, um, my older brother ended up talking to me and we were just outside of a restaurant in Salem, Oregon. I had gone up to visit with my current husband and, and uh, he said, Barb, Barb, there's, there's something I realized I need to tell you. And I'm thinking, okay, good. All right. What is it? And he says, you died when you were 18 months old. Now he didn't know that I'd had my second MDE at age 31. So he thought he was disclosing this to me and that it would be really shocking, et cetera. And it was shocking, but you know, having had the other NDE, it wasn't as shocking as it would have been if I had not known that. So I said, what, what happened, what? And he said, well, you had a really high temperature. You were just a baby. And he, he was about 12 at the time. And he said that um, my mom was, my mom and dad were, you know, trying to take care of me, et cetera. And my mom was pregnant with my little sister. So my mom was ready to deliver. And um, he said that uh, my dad, he, he said that my dad noticed that I was shaking, convulsing. And so what happened was that I, the high temperature had caused me to go into convulsions. And then they both noticed that I stopped breathing. So my dad rushed in and called the fire department because there was no 911 at that time in Salem, Oregon. And uh, my mom, you know, crying and holding me, not breathing. And the fire department told my dad to tell my mom to put me into tepid bath water, to submerse my body into tepid bath water, and that that would help to lower my body temperature and that the ambulance was on its way. So they, she was also supposed to add just a few ice cubes to slowly lower the temperature of the water that was in that I was in. So she had my brothers, um, we only had one tray of ice cubes. And so she had my brothers run next door to the neighbor's houses. And my older brother came back first with some ice from the neighbor's house. And he said he stood in the doorway, handed my mom the ice um, in the bathroom. And he said, you know, my body was in the tepid water. My mom was sobbing over the top of me. I had turned soft purple. I was lifeless. And he said he was just feeling shocked and standing there staring at it. And he said, all of a sudden the ambulance pulled up in front of the house. They could hear the siren winding down. They knew the ambulance guys were gonna be there in any second. And he said, all of a sudden you came back to life. He said, you arched your back backwards and you took in a deep breath. And when you took that deep breath, you turned from purple to bright red again, which is the color I'd been before I had um, you know, stopped breathing. And he said, then you start crying. And the ambulance people came rushing in and they wrapped you up in a blanket and they took you away. And he said that um, my sister, my older sister is four years older, so she would have been about almost six years old. Um, came to, towards my parents just as they were rushing out the front door to follow the ambulance to the hospital. And she said, why was Barbie having a temper tantrum? And my mom said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, the nanny that we had that was helping my mom with the, the four kids, um, she said, you know, the nanny said that she was having a temper tantrum. And my mom looked at the nanny and said, I'll talk to you after I get back. 
And the kids all realized after my mom got back from the hospital that the nanny was never there at the fam with the family any longer. So she got fired for having told my sister that I was having a temper tantrum. So my brother said that my parents then said, don't ever talk to Barbie about this. Don't ever tell her. None of the kids were supposed to talk to me about it. And so he said over the years, you know, many times he had thought about telling me, but he said that it was either not a good time in my life or it was not a good time in his life. So, so weird. Finding out, yeah, finding out that I'd had one when I was 18 months old, but there were lots of things that happened in my life as a, did, as a child. Did you remember something from then? No, but just, I had all these bizarre things that would occur that, that like know, after just, effects. Yeah. Yeah. So, but see, was, that's weird because my five-year-old drowning, I didn't remember it until after my 25-year-old NDE. Oh. I just looked up in the night sky one night and, and it was just like playing like a movie trailer from oh, front to back. Wow. And I went and asked my family, did I drown when I was little? And I was told, my mom said, kept it quiet because they didn't want my dad's family to know because the mom's first child, I was their sixth, died at nine months. And my and then my dad's family blamed her. Oh. And she didn't want blame for another child, even though I was back to life, you know, but yeah, that I'd exactly. almost drown. And yeah. so that's weird. That's another similarity yeah. we have that it was kept yeah. quiet from you. I don't remember anything at all of it, but I had all these interesting things that would happen when I was young. And, you know, I, I always, always got flipped out about it, but, you know, I didn't talk to anybody about it. Back then you didn't like mention things like that, but like the phone would ring and all of a sudden I turned to my mom at five years old and say, mom, grandma is calling you. She wants to, you know, talk about blah, blah, blah. And then my mom would look at me, you know, and she'd walk over to the phone and she'd say hello. And then it was my grandma and she would talk about that thing. And my mom was like, how did you know that? And, and uh, how do I know how I knew it? And so I, I just always felt like connected to God when I was a child. I felt like there was always this protection that I felt. And then my first guest on this into ETV, his was during him, his circumcision. Oh, and he was adopted. And so he didn't know till a long time later when he met up with his biological family, this, what this memory was about because he had an NDE. Yep. And they was able to confirm the room he was in, what he had been seeing. And then he was in this realm and confirmed it all. But yeah, newborn. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Well, and change for life. And that's the first I, thing I say in my book. The forward is something like children are changed after a near-death experience, even though they didn't know they had one. Right, exactly. Yeah, I was the kid that, you know, like there was a new kid in school, I would walk up and say, Hi, my name's Barbie, I want to be friends. You know, it didn't matter what color, what shape, what size, what anything about them. I was always trying to adopt people like elderly people. And I would go and visit like elderly neighbors and be the little girl who would sit in their living room and listen to their stories, you know, and all the other kids are outside playing. And I'd be like, trying to be this little, you know, I don't know. I, I did not trying to be, I was this little goody girl that wanted to help people. And I wanted to like, was it one of them a prostitute? What? what? Was it one of them a prostitute lady you would go talk to? I don't remember that. Oh, really? <laughs> I've got, I got so many stories. Let me tell okay. you. I was listening to something while ago and I thought you found out later she was a prostitute. <laughs> I don't remember that, but you know, I think somebody else. <laughs> One of the coolest ones was when I was riding my bike across the bridge in Salem to go to my work when I was 17. I worked for the newspaper 
and I was riding my bike across the bridge. I was kind of late. And um, all of a sudden, as I'm on my 10 speed, um, I feel this hand like pressing my head down over my handlebars and I was fighting it and I did not want to ride you know down over my handlebars like a little kid and I'm like trying to fight against this hand that's pushing me down and it was stronger than me for sure and I get down over my handlebars and this big truck goes rumbling across the bridge and it has this extended mirror that's sticking out and it literally went like this and just brushed against the back of my head because I was so low it didn't hit me in the back of my head and whack my head um and I realized that you know that pushing down saved my life because if it had hit me you know going by 35 or 40 miles an hour and whacked me in the back of the head I probably would have gone off my bike maybe fallen in the tires of the car you know in the truck and you know been run over or whatever and and so I, you know, sat up right after it, the release was immediate after the truck's um, mirror went by and I sat up and I got up, uh, I mean, I sat upright and I was like, oh my God. And I pulled my bike over and I stood there and I actually started crying. And I was like looking out over the river and I was saying, thank you, God. I, I know that was you that helped protect me right then. And I really, really thank you so much. And and so <laughs> I didn't want everybody that was driving by to see me crying, you know. <laughs> I think it was Tamara that said that about the prostitute. Oh, really? Oh, okay. in your video with her. It was her example, oh. not yours. Okay. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. good. Because I was like, I don't remember. Yeah, it was Tamara's example. I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> good. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, so it's been, you know, it's been amazing situations. I, I, the, the near-death experience after effects are what are really pretty cool for us to live with. And like, I got to say another one was I was 16 going through a mall in Salem, Oregon that had just been opened and it was called Lancaster Mall. And um, I was with my mom and all of a sudden I see this big round barrel thing that is made out of chicken wire and it's got all these entries in it. And there's, it's on a big table to elevate it up off, you know, I'm standing on this table and it's got all these entry pads on the, on the, around the table and you can enter to win a car. So I'm 16 and I'm like, Oh my God. And so I said to my mom, I, I want to, I want to enter, I want to enter to win that car. And it, the sign said you had to be 18 licensed driver. I wasn't either one of those. And I said, I need your driver's license, mom. And she looked at me and she said, Barbie, you couldn't win a dirty sock. Forget it. <laughs> and so she continues walking. So I dug around in her purse and I got her driver's license. I said, I'll meet you inside the store. And I went back and I put her name on the entry. And out of 60,000 entries, my mom won that car. <laughs> Should have so, named a dirty sock. <laughs> I know, really. It was like, see, mom, I can win. <laughs> but it was it was this knowledge and this feeling like, oh my God, I've got to do this. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So I, I would get those a lot as I was um young and had all these different situations that occurred that, you know, people around me would kind of go, you know, what just happened? Did you just do that? You know, and it, it was it was I had to learn to protect myself by hiding the capacities that I had and not showing, you know, like when the phone rang that I knew who it was or, you know, something that was going to happen that I just unfolded because I, I would freak people out with, um, you know, the, the pre-knowledge of something that was going on and I learned to, to just hide it. So, but now, I was that I you that was, um, would have been in that car rack and that truck was on its side. 
the semi was on its side oh, and you heard oh, stop yes, 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 or slow yes. down or something. It wasn't, yeah, I wasn't in the car wreck. It was, um, I had just talked up at San Francisco for four of the IONS groups and my husband was driving my husband now and we, it was only like 2000 and I don't know, 16 or 17 or something. And um, we were driving back from San Francisco and the 101 freeway comes inland and then it hits the, the ocean at, up, up at Gaviota, which is about 35 miles north of Santa Barbara. And then it runs along the ocean all the way to Santa Barbara. So we got to Gaviota right around nine o'clock at night and I was looking, I was laying back in my seat and I was looking out the window and the winds were gusting against the car and it's really windy area up there. And I, you know, didn't have any worries, but all of a sudden this huge gust of wind hit our van and I was watching as my husband was like struggling with the steering wheel and, you know, this big seven foot tall guy struggling with the steering wheel. I'm like, oh God. And so after he got that under control and it was just just gusting again then i said you know I, I think victor we should we should slow down we shouldn't do 65 i think we should like slow down to 50. and he said i think that's a good idea too so he, he slowed down to 50. well then i thought okay well we're safe so i'm looking out at the moon and the stars and we're you know 35 minutes from home i'm so happy because we've driven five hours by now and um, all of a sudden this voice in my right ear says whispers kind of this danger big impact ahead danger big impact and i'm like what oh my gosh so i sit up in my seat i was laying backwards and i sat upright and i checked my seatbelt, made sure that i was nice and tight in my seat and everything and then i looked over victor and i said you know how i sometimes hear from the other side and he goes yeah and I said, well, I just heard danger, big impact ahead, danger, big impact. So I think we should slow down further. And I think we should do like 30 miles an hour. And he goes, Barbara, we're on the freeway. We can't do 30 miles an hour. And I turned around and looked through the back of our van and there were no cars, no lights back there. And so I said, well, why don't we do 30 miles an hour? And if you see someone coming, go ahead and speed back up to 50 if that's what makes you comfortable but we need to have time to stop so that we don't hit whatever it is that's up in front of us i don't know if it's a dead deer or if it's a tree that's been blown down i don't know what it is but we need time to stop so let's do 30. so he said okay i can do that so we're going along at 30 miles an hour for about 10 minutes and we come around this bend in the highway and way way up in the dark in like mile ahead of us I see, we both see these police car lights that are, and I, I immediately think, oh, somebody's getting pulled over, but right here I felt, oh no, that's, that's where the danger is. And so I was like intently looking through the front windshield check, trying to see what the police car was doing up there, what's going on. As we got closer and closer to it, we're doing 30 miles an hour, we're in the slow lane. We see that the police car isn't stopped off the freeway. It stopped squarely blocking the slow lane. And it's got his lights on but then as we get closer there's no policeman inside the car no anywhere within lights that are on top and and the, it's really dark area up there so there's no street lights so you can't see anything else but this police car so we're in the slow lane we need to change lanes to get over to the fast lane to go around the police car so victor starts to do that you know how many however many 30 yards behind it or whatever and um right when that happened whoever it was on the other side that was warning me grabbed both of my upper arms and i felt their face go nose to nose with me and they screamed 10 miles an hour 
<laughs> I was so freaked out that they were touching me and that they were nose to nose with me and that that just happened. I screamed 10 miles an hour and Victor slowed down from 30 to 10. We were in the fast lane now. So we got up to level with the police car. We're doing 10 miles an hour. And after we slid past it, maybe 20, 30 feet, finally our lights lit up why the police car was there because there he wasn't pulling someone over there was a truck a semi truck that had tipped over onto its side and the dirty bottom of the truck was facing us so there were no reflectors or anything and and the police car had stopped so far back that his lights were lighting up the truck we couldn't see it at all until we were beyond his car it wasn't and a so tanker it was a semi truck yeah yeah i mean like a gas, a gas tanker tank. like if you would hit it explode well it was a regular truck but the gas tanks okay. on a regular truck are on the cab of the truck they're on the sides of the cab of the truck okay and so it was in squarely in the, the fast lane so we were heading right for the cab of the truck where the gas tank were, was so we would have blown them up so what what, what ended up happening was we went off the left side of the road around the front of the truck in control because we were only doing 10 miles an hour so no hitting the guardrail or anything we went around the front of the truck and on the far side i looked up and there was the police officer standing over the um open window of the truck and talking to the truck driver who was trapped inside and the wind was howling he didn't even know that we had come and we had caught it and what ended up it being was that the chp had actually closed the freeway way back behind us and we were in between the closure and uh, the truck. you were past the flares we were pat we they put them down after we'd gone past yeah. so we didn't know that that closure was back there that's why no cars ever caught up to us because we were the only ones going towards that truck so the other side what i call the other side god your angels whatever they helped us get through that situation safely so i then began thanking them and saying thank you for the truck driver's life thank you for the police officer's life thank you for my life thank you for victor's life and as i was saying that as i was going down the freeway after we went past the truck victor turns over and he, he's completely quiet and he you know just watched all that go on and he looks at me and he goes barbara how is it that you're able to do that if i had not just watched that unfold and you told me this story i would have never even as no i know you never lied i would have not been able to believe it he said i had to see that to believe that he said that was so incredible i can't even begin to tell you and i was like victor it's not me who's doing it you realize it's the other side who puts their fingers into our lives and makes a change for us if we understand that they're there and that they want to help us and we listen to what they're telling us it's not our intuition that's not what's happening yeah. it's help from the other side and that's I said, what i say it wasn't me that voice come in and yelled at me out of nowhere it wasn't yep. me and people say oh it's you it's your god your christ conscious like bullcrap nope 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 no it nope, ain't nope. i ain't that smart <laughs> nope i didn't know that truck was up there i had no idea of that you know it's like completely crazy so i just i love the fact that they love to help us and i love the fact that i'm connected to them and i always talk to them and say you know hey if there's anything you need me to know I'm here to do your work in, in this world. I don't have anything better to do. And so as long as you want me here, I'll be here. And when you want me to come home, I'll come happily come home. 
but um if you want to you know have input in my life just do whatever you want to do and people so, that aren't getting connected need to get connected yeah because exactly. it is such a help it like I, I how did i ever uh deny that before and yeah. not see it before and not rely on it it's i used to argue i used to argue with it and then i realized that when you're arguing with it listen to it because it isn't you yeah really uh -huh. yeah it's not your intuition it's the other side that's coming in saying you know this is what's this is what's coming and this is what you need to do this is you know whatever it's giving you hints of how to to be better or how to avoid something or how to live your life in a better way so listen and listen and follow it, it and it, i've i've not listened steps. before and i paid for it yeah, yeah. i could have helped somebody and i didn't and it feels yeah. absolutely horrible I never forgive myself. Yeah. So it's really important that we all understand that home's there and it's not a heaven and hell thing. There's no judgment. I felt no judgment whatsoever when I was out of but my But people body. have went to hell though. There are people that have, I think, felt that they're in their training of their life, that there was only heaven and hell. They didn't realize that there was home, which I yeah, call- Yeah, but like, like Howard Storm, he was atheist. He didn't believe in heaven or hell. And he went to hell. Yeah. You know, there's people that have these hellish in the East. Yeah. Huh? I don't know how to, I don't know how to explain that, you know, and, and Eben Alexander, you know, he had that worm's eye view where he was down in this muck and he felt, you know, that, that light, light and that little um, sound that rose him up out of the. I think we all get what we need. And if a butt whipping is what we need, like a trip to hell, then you will get a trip to hell. That's oh what God, I that's think. Funny. I think God is our father. And if we need that butt whipping, we're going to get it. We'll get whatever <laughs> we that. need to straighten our butts around. I love that. Peggy. <laughs> that is the best line I've ever heard. <laughs> and it's so eloquently put, isn't it? <laughs> it is wonderful. I will kick your ass. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I wonder what my mom used to say. I'll shoot your ass. <laughs> and that's love. <laughs> Only That's parent why. will beat yeah. your butt. <laughs> yeah, she wanted me to stay, you know, and she wanted my sister and my siblings to stay above, you know, back then in the 70s, it was drugs and, and, uh, you know, crap going on all over. And the you place. weren't into that. I mean, I you were a good girl. I was a good girl. Yeah, I just yeah, I wanted to be a good person. And I wanted to choose wisely. So that I think that was part of my NDE from my early childhood, I wanted to just be a good person. So now this seven was... foot husband, your mom can't get in his face. <laughs> like the other <laughs> one you thought said she grabbed him. <laughs> can't do that to him, can't cast... she? <laughs> yeah, she's passed over. She's over on the other side. But uh I'm pretty, you know, it's funny because when I met him, <clears throat> um he went to Oregon State University. So he was from Santa Barbara, but he went up to Oregon State University, which is really close to Salem where I lived. And my father was a purchasing agent for the state of Oregon, and he loved, he had attended Oregon State University, and he loved basketball. So I'm pretty sure that since my husband was pretty famous up there, being a seven-foot-tall center at Oregon State University, pretty sure that my dad, who was dead by the time I met Victor as well, um, pushed, helped push Victor into my life because um, he would have been the person who was purchasing all of Victor's um, sports equipment and everything for Oregon State University as a purchasing Funny. agent for the state of Oregon. So I'm pretty sure my dad was like, 
here's this seven footer for you, Barbara. Yeah, that's why I said, well, go. I think that it just come to me on a podcast here the other day. It just like made sense to me. Like, you know, the um, big like thousand word puzzles that are, uh, you know, already say it's all put together. And, like God just takes it and throws it on the floor and says, now go live your life. Like all the pieces will come together in time. And then it was all one perfect puzzle. Then we're done. It's just like, cause God already knows and everything that's going to happen, you know, God knows the past, he knows the future, he knows, and and it's not like it's decided. He just knows. Yeah. And it's just like, now go, go pick it up. And the morning when I started to write my book that morning, I had got a vision and I seen myself like I, I must have been like an angel or something because I'm looking at myself down below in this vision and I see myself bent over. I'm in a creek in the woods and I'm picking up these little specks of light as I go and I'm picking up these specks and it's just like this black curtain moved to the side and it's like um, and that's when I realized I was putting all the spiritual stuff and all the abuse under the rug just the same. And I just grabbed my laptop and I just started writing. And then when I come to that thought the other day of the puzzle, I thought, well, maybe that's what I was doing in the creek. I was picking up pieces of the puzzle, going along my life, picking up pieces of puzzle. It's just like things come to me like all these women, especially, oh, I'm going to get wrinkles. I'm going to get fat. I'm going to get old. It's like, you don't know what's waiting for you. If you could let go of all that. You have no idea how fun this is. The wisdom that you're going to have as you get older that like people have their NDEs and their thirties trying to talk about it in their forties. I'm like, I don't know if you can do it because it took me to get in my fifties before I started having the wisdom to understand and put it all together. And the, every day I get older and older, I get smarter. I get wiser. I may not be prettier. I might be fatter and I'm getting older. But you know what? I'm enjoying the the revelations. Yeah, yeah. It really it really helps you to grow who you are inside. Doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. It grows your soul, and that's the most important part of you. You carry that on after you've left this world. And and, and so, the young women in these abusive situations. Mm-hmm. I mean, God help them because they're not in their revelation. They're not getting in touch with themselves. They're worrying about what society will think of their divorce, financially, what will happen if you leave, what he will do, what he will think, what all these things. And as you get older, you throw those completely away. Yep. Yeah, you realize that, you know, your balance in your life is more important than all of the other stuff. And and yeah, it could have cost yours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It could have cost mine. We could not be here right now. We could be maggot meat, like a whole bunch of other women that have not got out of those situations. And when my ex had me up against the wall, I had just ran up the stairs and I, after he come running out naked and he told the boys get in the house, I said, well, they're more, they're scared of him and not me. So of course they got out. And I said, boys, go to the basement. That's where the bedrooms were. And I said, boys, go to the basement. Because he was not in the basement. He was upstairs. And so I said, I'll be down in a minute. And so I went down and checked. Make, I said, boys, stay right here. It's okay. Stay right here. Because I'm thinking he could kill me right now. And I want my boys in the basement. Mm-hmm. And the reason I fled is because I thought, this is it. He had against the wall. And I thought, 
this is it. And I was worked at children's services. I got women out of these situations. I wasn't wow. me. And here it is me. And I'm thinking, and I, that's what flashed all the women in graves that thought it wouldn't get to this point. And I am at this point. This is the point. And so let's see. And I'd already called the cops and I didn't know if I dialed all the numbers. I knew them by heart because I worked at children's services. And I didn't know if I dialed them all. And and he grabbed me and I don't think he thought I dialed any numbers back when we had rotary phones. And and he's got me against the wall and he's a big, strong guy. And he's got me like this, my neck's right here against the wall. And he's just, ooh, the hate just dripping off his face. He's slobbering so mad at me because stupid stuff. And um, so he's so mad because I was going to leave. And and I thought, this is it. And then I heard on the phone, hello, hello. It was the sheriff's office. They heard it all. They heard wow. him slamming me against the wall. They heard him calling me names and just wanting to rip me apart. And he knew he was caught. Mr. Catholic from the wonderful Catholic family that they kept all their alcoholism. Everybody knew their alcoholism. They he wasn't thought anybody knew. But, and so he knew. But, and so he let go. And, but anyway, yeah, I mean, that could have been it. And I just you have you got away. You know, that's that's the big thing is that we somehow get away and then and we I go think, back though. We're no different. Well, we went back. Well, I went back, yes, because he had said that he'd gone through counseling and that he had corrected the error. And I stayed away for a whole year. So I, I moved out and took care of myself for a whole year. But um he, you know, begged all the way along he was fine and he would had done his work and he was better and he wasn't a bad person in the rest of his life. He didn't drink. There wasn't issues with that or drugs or anything like that. It was just that he had this anger explosive situation that would come up whenever he was stressed with work or whatever. And um, yeah, he, he, uh, you know, lured me back, but unfortunately um he hadn't changed and he hadn't gotten over that and the next time that he was stressed at work and it came out on the children and I again so yeah I I think that you know he needed to have lots of counseling and lots of uh you know help but he didn't I don't think he ever really did get it I, I never found out who his counselor was I, I don't think he was really telling me the truth so my ex of yeah, course me and my boys into a boat that night he was so drunk and that's what the fight was over because he knows I don't allow my kids to be in a vehicle with somebody's drinking and he's making right. us go get in a boat at night. Wow. And wow. I was scared to death. It was dark. It was so dark. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. Wow. I'm so scared that my boys would drown that night that he was so drunk that we would we'd flip and my kids would drown. I was so scared. And so long story short, I got away from him yeah. and I got my kids and well, I got two of them. He grabbed the oldest one at the last minute with him. And so I went to the sheriff's department. Here I am working at children's services and I walk in and file domestic on my husband. And they wow. wouldn't, they didn't want to file it. It's a small town. That's a big family. They're all drinking buddies. Their uncles wow. too, and his dad and all. And he would, didn't want to file it. And uh, so uh, I, he says, well, you're safe now. I said, when I called you, I wasn't. When I, I called you, you heard it. And he says, but you're fine now. He says, if you're oh. home and it happens again, you call. I said, what happens when you're home and you call? You may not get to the phone. 
And so he's, and so he wouldn't do it. And so I uh, come home and I saw my, uh, my ex that he was here. And so I knew my son was here. I need to get my other son. And so I went to the neighbors and I called and I said, well, he's home. So go resting. He says, but you're not, you're safe. So I can't go home, but my son's not safe because I don't know. Maybe they got back in the boat. I don't know if my son is safe. Maybe something happened. I don't know. Maybe he's going to go back out tonight. My son will get hurt. So um, I went and got a hotel that night. And uh, I come back the next morning and uh, got my other son. And uh, so the next day was Monday. And so I filed because they told me I'd have to follow the prosecutor. So I followed the domestic with the prosecutor. I got an attorney and got a restraining order. He pled no contest. But I mean, but yeah, I went back later. It's the hardest of any woman's life to deal with those issues and then to be able to get away and to be able to stay away. It is the hardest thing because we are pretty much trained, you know, to accept and to keep supporting and, you know, be the mom and be the solid person in our family. And yeah, it's really, you know, you're facing a family that like you had with the, his family being so big and influential in the community and, and et cetera, et cetera. You know, nobody wants to file any documents against them. And um, when you work for children's services, you don't want to go to domestic violence center with your sons. Really? Really? Yep. You don't want to go to the shelter. It's perfect people there, you know? you know what this is this is important um also to understand that it was good that it happened to you because it shows that it can happen to anybody so mm -hmm. even people who are trained to deal with people who are you know supporting people that are having domestic violence it can be happening to them and they can be stuck in a situation just the same as anybody else so that's really important for you know children's protective services to understand that you know it, it can happen to anybody so that's do you important. remember or have you heard of the movie Yesterday's Children? You mentioned no. you worked with a guy that's into the past life regression. Oh, yeah. Peter Wright. Uh -huh. Ask him if he has It's an older movie. Yesterday's okay. Children. Um, it's a lot like what we're talking about. It's a true story. Um, a woman is pregnant. She has a teenage son. They could never get, have another child until she was like late in life. And so she's pregnant and her husband's not happy because it's late in life, right? And so they have a business to run and all. But while she's pregnant, she keeps getting these memories of a life she didn't live from like 100 years ago. And all these children she had. And she was an abused woman. And, they, and she even drew a map of where and wrote down the name of the country and the town where she lived. And her mom told her, says, you know, you used to draw that when you were a kid. You used to talk about that when you were a kid. But now that she was pregnant for this child, she's, she's all these memories are coming back. And so she ends up going to this place, orders a map, and she finds out this is a real place. And she has this map of where this mostly took place. So she goes there with her teenage son. And they find where this woman lived and she, this here what happened was this woman she sent his memories of she gets us a past life and because um this woman in this past life um was in a very was in a very abusive marriage 
and she had all these children and she and he, the doctor said don't get her pregnant again or she won't survive well he got her pregnant again he raped her and the kids in the next room and heard it he raped her she's pregnant again and she kind of has this feeling she's going to die and she asked her oldest son who she's very close to please something happens to me keep the children together he promised her and then she dies and as she's on her deathbed before she dies she's being carried out like the what we would call mercy squabs you know little wagon comes and gets her and the kids are standing there crying and they're left with this abusive man and here's the oldest son knowing how am i going to keep them together i promised mom and so this here's this old man like in his 80s carrying this guilt going to this graveyard of his siblings that he couldn't save, you know, and there's still some alive. Well, she, this here, this woman is pregnant. Now in the future, she gets these kids together. She goes back there to that place and she rejoins these old people that have been separated since their mother died. And that's called yesterday's children. Yes. Yesterday's awesome. children. I'll have to check that out because Peter Wright would Jane love Seymour, I think, is the one that plays. I think that's her name, plays in it. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. Well, you know, I think that we need to understand that we have been here many times. We aren't just here once. Um, Peter, when I first started my IANS meeting, there was this big article that was in the local newspaper, Santa Barbara News Press, about my near-death experience. And um, then I started the IANS group, and there was an article, that part of the article said that I was starting this group. So five people called me and said, I'd like to be part of your, you know, your group as you're moving forward. So one of them was Peter Wright. And he um, then about the third or fourth meeting, um, he was always saying, I'm a past life regression therapist, blah, blah, blah. And I had no idea what a past life regression therapist was. I, at the time, I was like, what? Never heard of that. So I ended up um, talking with him and he said, would you like me to try to see if you have any past lives would you like that you can remember and i said okay i'm kind of like thinking do i want to do that hmm. <laughs> so so i went over to his house and he hypnotized me and he had it all on tape he tape recorded the whole thing and it was amazing it was besides my near-death experience that i remember you know wholly from 1987 every second of it and can feel it when i talk about it this past life was absolutely incredible in me watching what it was. And it initially started with me being in a thick bunch of underbrush type of bushes. I was a child, maybe eight years old, and I was very scared. And I was trying not to cry or make any noise because I didn't want to be found. And I was in Africa. I was black. I looked down at my feet and I actually saw my feet black. I had a little cloth wrapped around my body and that was all that I was wearing. And I was afraid because these um, slave traders had stormed into our village. They had machetes and guns and they were rounding up mostly the about 13 or 14 year olds up all the way to maybe the 30 year old men. They were rounding up the ones they could get the most money for, which were the ones that would work in the fields back here in the United States. And um, so I had been separated from my parents and I was hiding in these bushes and I was afraid I was going to be found. Well, then he moved me forward, <clears throat> excuse me, 
and they did they did actually find me so they had me in a like a box that had these wooden slats that i was able to see where the slats connected both vertically and horizontally there were little square holes and i could peek out the hole and i could see this there was a dead man who was laying in the dirt one of the villagers who had a machete um, hit the back of his head and um, he was you know had bled out and he was laying face down in the dirt just a few feet away from the box where they had put me into and um, then he moved me forward again in that life and I was on a, a big giant ship. I was down in the hold of the ship. So it was all these huge timbers that were the floor. And there were all these black people, including myself. And they were they had all been uh, stolen from their villages. And there was weeping going on. There was you know crying. There was a woman that was kind of singing a hymn of some kind, uh, like an African you know, song. And there were people that were just, you know, laying moaning and, and all these, and it was, there was lots of seasickness because we couldn't see the, you know, anything outside. It was all dark and there were just some um, candle things hanging from the ceiling. And so then he moved me forward from there and I was actually on a plantation. I had been sold and I was um, helping, I was bought to help this woman who cooked all the food for the slaves and the family. And um, she, her name was Annie. And that's, of course, the name that they named her because that wasn't her African name. But um, she didn't talk the same African language as I did. And I didn't speak English yet, although she had learned her English enough to be able to deal with you know, her, her living situation. And I was just so frightened and so scared. And my parents were not, you know, obviously nowhere to be found. They weren't on the ship with me. And so um, it ended up that um, I grew with that family, I stayed there. And when I was 16 years old, they actually had me being the nanny, basically, to their three young children. And I was, you know, helping them get dressed in the morning, and I was helping them, you know, through their day. And it was far enough out away from a location that there was no school. So a man came on a horseback, and he actually taught the children there at the at the residence and I was learning to read and write along with these young children because I was picking up from this this man that what they what he was teaching the children so that was the last time I saw that piece of my you know that portion he then brought me back and but it was so real and so amazing and I there's things that I've never read about or you know it was it was stuff that wasn't within my knowledge base so I knew that it was something outside of this current life. And it was just really cool to find that, you know, I had been here before I'd had that experience. Maybe that's why, you know, a black child came to my elementary school in Salem, Oregon. And I walked up and said, hi, I'm Barbie. And I want to be friends. You know, I didn't see color. I didn't see those things. I, I literally, you know, was open to all the children and all the people. And I didn't, my um, story with prejudice came after my five-year-old drowning. I was at Sunday school and I was coloring and I started singing Jesus loves me over and over and over and I left my body and then I was in heaven and the scene was exactly like I was coloring. Now how this makes sense, I guess God shows us what we can understand or what we need. And it was just like it because it was Jesus sitting on this big rock and two kids, two kids standing beside him one on his lap and one, there's like three kids there. And I, I was there suddenly and physically in front and I wanted to kick that 
not kick, but pull that kid off Jesus' lap. Because <laughs> like I didn't want to wait my turn. Like they were in oh. line to like Santa Claus, you know, in line sit on lap. I didn't wait my turn because I could feel his love so much. But at that moment, I was told by a voice that just never left me, which even before I even understood where this stuff was, it never left me. And it said, children, I'm sorry. It said, Jesus loves children of every color. Never forget that. And it's weird because I was coloring with my crayons and this, you know, Jesus loves me and this happened. And so I hated prejudice. So I was like five. And then when I was about 11, um, I saw my first black person because we live Southeast Ohio. We live in the country. I see my first black person, you know, in person. And um, there was a group of kids playing out in this yard. And in fact, I think they were segregated. Now that I think of, we had segregated schools. We shouldn't have, because it was, uh, see, I was 11, it would have been 72. Shouldn't have segregated schools, but I was always told the black kids went to this one school, Washington school, and I went to Phillips, so it's behind it. Now that I think about it, like, we still have segregated school. That's what I was told. I never went to school with these kids, but they were running around this yard. And I missed my family because my parents had split up and we no longer lived in the country, lived in town. And the older kids was off running around. I was home alone all the time. And mom went off my her boyfriend and stuff. And I seen this family of kids that remind me of us five kids playing in the country, playing ball. And I want, I, oh, I want to be a part of them so bad. And I was so hungry. I was so, so, so hungry. And um, they saw me, you come play. And I was running, playing, and then the mother, this big, kind of like Oprah Winfrey, big lady, comes out, called the kids in to eat. And so they said, come on, eat with us. And I thought, really? Because my white friends, their moms always said, go home. They wouldn't let me come in and eat. They said, go home and eat. And I was nothing to eat. And they told me to come in and eat. And it's like, I was in bliss. I got a, I thought I had a new family they're so fun you know this big family of kids and i'm invited in to eat and so um we all go in so you go in the front door you're in the dining room and it's nice table just set perfect and i seen the ideal mother and i think from then on i just wanted to be the ideal mother and i because the table was set and she was back in the kitchen i could see her, her back back in there at the stove cooking and it smelled so good and they went and asked if I could eat. And she said, turned and looked at me. And she said, yeah. I thought, yay. She says, but you need to go home and ask your parents first. And she had a grin. Now I understand that grin. Your parents ain't gonna let you eat in my black household. <laughs> I didn't know that. She had this grin. Yeah, you can, just ask your parents first. I ran all the way home. I was so excited. I found my family. I was thinking, Oh, I, I can stay here all the time. Maybe I can move in with them. Maybe my parents will just let me live there from now on. I just want to just be them. And so I ran home and my mom and stepdad just happened to be home, which usually they weren't. And they happened to be home. And I was like, can I go spend the night? Or spend the night. I was like, I'm sure that's what I was thinking. Can I go eat with this family? And my mom's like, who? Where? What are you talking about? And my stepdad said, you mean that two-story brick house down there? Yeah. He said, if I ever catch you down that street with those N-word, I will beat your butt all the way home. I went upstairs and I cried. I was so mad. And I promised myself that I would never 
ever let my children be prejudiced. And I'm very proud to say that my son, Jeremy, adopted a black boy at birth. He's 12 years old. Our beautiful grandson, Marcus. And three months later, they adopted a little, they say, they're safe, safe haven, a little girl three months later. So they were, we had these twins in a stroller, my grandkids. This jet black little boy and this jet white little girl. And Aww. I got him, him the little Ohio um, State University football outfit and her little cheerleader outfit. Oh, it's adorable. They're 12 years old. Now oh, I just love pieces. And then later they had their own children. And then my oldest son, Matthew, his first wife, he um, got with a girl that now in Southeast Ohio, they would call her black, but she's not black. She is from um, like the islands. Little girls, um, she's like for the islands, like Hawaii, like the islands. Oh, okay. And so, you know, she's darker. And so, but down here, they would call her black. You know what I mean? Because they don't know any better. Everybody's dark skin's black. It doesn't matter where you're from, Mexican or India, where you're, you're black. But so, oh, so wow. they each have a black child. And so I'm just so thrilled that um, my um, kids, were, the, I made sure they were never prejudiced. And my ex's family beat me up because I was an inward lover, beat me up bad. And, uh, and, and, she, and the girl that did it went to jail. But, um, oh, but yeah, so, so I was the same way. And you, you mentioned machete. I have this fear of sickles. Oh. Like, I don't believe reincarnation or anything, but I just have, like, I have fear of sickles. And I have a fear of being hanged. Like, I have this memory of, like, being hung. It's just like real quick. It'll come like out of nowhere. But I do have one memory I write about in my book that doesn't belong to me, even though I don't believe reincarnation. Um, I was this little girl, rich, rich parents. And we were standing there waiting for a helicopter to land to get in it. And I have beautiful dress and my my dad's in a suit. He's very handsome. My mom is more vague, but it's like my dad is like everything. And we get into this helicopter and I can see the pilot and the co-pilot and they're wearing like the white shirts, uniforms and hats. And we get in the back and I've never been in a helicopter in my life, but I can tell you exactly what it looks like in this helicopter. And we go up and then that's it. That's it. Like we're standing there waiting for the helicopter, the wind, you know, as it lands. And then we climb, we're ducking our heads, you know, we're climbing in. And they turn around and smile at me, the pilot and co-pilot, and speak to me. And I'm so adored by my father. Oh. And like my mom's there, but it's just like, I'm so, so close to my dad. And it's just like, I've never had anything bad to me in my whole life ever happened. I'm so protected. That's it. Never happened to me. It's a memory. It does not belong to me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I wonder why you don't believe in reincarnation, darling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, you know, when you grow up Christian and you hear like reincarnation, you think it's not Christian. And then, like you say, you don't believe in hell. And then I'm it's, like, well, I hear people so talk much. about hell. So I just kind of keep an open mind. Yeah, I kind of don't believe in that, but maybe I do. And I hear something, oh, I kind of don't believe in that, but maybe I do. So I just kind of leave an open mind up there. Like, I can have a lot of different guests on. And like, I don't filter their story. They come on and say some stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't say, I keep a straight face, but I want to go, huh? <laughs> uh, well, I think that, you know, in my feelings are that 
There's so much that has over the centuries been written into the Christian religion that it kind of, some of it is, you know, completely straight from God and from Jesus, but some of it is man. Some of it was man and ego and controlling and money and power. And, and unfortunately, not all of it is all true. So you have to kind of pick and choose on that and say, you know, it, it just wasn't always, you know, you have to look back in those centuries that, that this was happening in. And, you know, the religion was used to control people. It was used to um, control the masses. It was used to get power and ego and, you know. And, and that word true. <clears throat> that word true. Is there true? Is there really yeah. true? Is that really an accurate word? Yeah, really. Because there's so many variables of everything and so many wars and, and disagreements and uh, over what is true, what one believes in true. And what I believed yeah. was true 20 years ago sure isn't what I believe today. Yeah, no, you have to just, you have to look in your own heart and figure out what's what resonates with you. That, that, that story of your helicopter kind of what helped me, you would, if I were you, I would be, like thinking a little bit more about it because um, you know, my, my, when Peter hypnotized me and I came through with that whole thing about being in Africa and coming here and being a slave and being on a plantation, you know, that wasn't anything in my reality has never, I like grew up in Salem, Oregon. There was no slavery. There was, I was born in 1956. There was no slavery. There was nothing like that. I, I knew nothing about that. So you know, to me, and there's other things that have happened in my life where I've gone, okay, you know what, I have this big, deep fear of, of dark water. I don't know why I have, I, I learned to swim when I was under a year old. My father was a swimming instructor. And so there's no reason for me to feel that way. But it's still 65 years later, still very strong. If I go to Hawaii and there's you know, I don't even want to get into the water and, and snorkel. I, I live in Santa Barbara. There's such beautiful, you know, coastal waters just 10 blocks down from my house. And I don't want to go in the water. Uh, there's something. I wouldn't want I to have. go in dark water either. You know what's in there? Something, something in the water. Yeah, there's something in the water. You know, I don't know why I have that fear, but I have a fear. And I, it's not because of the movie Jaws or anything like that. It's been in nah, my life. That's not what I worry child. about. I just work because you can't see. You don't know yeah. what's in it. It was something in my childhood, you know, that I was going to be pulled under. And yeah, it was something. So, you know, I think these things that kind of bleed over from life to life, I think that means that we've had multiple lives here. And I think that, you know, we come back again and again, because we have these wonderful experiences that grow our soul. And we, we choose to have a new life and have these new experiences that grow our soul in a different way. So Sometimes I, really I wonder if reincarnation isn't like we think just one life, maybe say, I lived 100 years ago, and I lived in my grandma's body or lived in my grandma's, you know, or, or you know, what I mean, like, it could be, maybe, maybe we share, maybe like when I pass on, maybe I'll decide to go my granddaughter's body. Yeah. You know, something, you know, yeah, it could be, I don't know. Who, who gets to judge? Yeah. Who gets to say what, what it really all is? You know, I, I just keep trying to keep an open mind and say, hmm, okay, maybe. So yeah, for me, for me, I don't, I don't try just like, you know, don't, don't try to judge it. Just try to say, hmm, well, it could be maybe, hmm, 
Yeah, I right. see all the fighting on um, near-death experience Facebook groups. Everybody arguing oh. about who's right about this. I'm like, none of you know anything. You can't answer yeah. that. People say, because you had near-death experience. What uh, what happens with this? And uh, like, people commit suicide. Do they go down? It's like, people are answering that. You don't know. You don't know who yeah. goes to heaven, who goes to hell, or if you're reincarnated. Or, but that's just me. Yeah, I mean, I just try to get laid back here as my old age and quit sweating all the... <laughs> I don't even feel like I want to get involved with that discussion because I'd rather spend my time doing things that are positive and doing the things that are... Oh, no, I don't want none of them discussions. I stay out of them groups. Yeah, I, I don't either. I don't have any time for that. I'd rather... I'd rather be figuring out, you know, what next my gift bag is going to be for like right now, I've got a young man that I met that um, his mom is a teacher in India. And um, I hosted him in my home for a few days because he had um, a situation where he needed a place to stay. And I've had more than 17 foreign exchange students that I've hosted in my home. We have our five kids. And we also had kids from all over the world that have stayed with us. And so this young man was from India. His mom's a teacher. He was telling me that in, in India, if you your child goes to public school, it costs $2 US dollars per year for a child to go to public school for a year. But many of the families don't have even that enough money to put their children in a public school, even though it only costs $2. So his mom works at a public school and she gives scholarships to um, children that are in their area that parents, parents can't afford <clears throat> to send them to school. And so I talked to a couple of my friends and myself. And so we, we got $600 together. And then I went and got this big duffel bag thing. And I filled it up with all sorts of school supplies. And so when he goes over to India, he's going to take for his mom to distribute to the school all of these school supplies, and she's going to have extra $600, which would be 300 children for one year in school. Now, I, I told him I wanted her to use it for one child for multiple years of school so that that child can stay in school. So um, she's going to administer the scholarships from our group here in Santa Barbara, and I think that that's the way that we touch lives. That's the yeah. way we make the world My thing better. was therapeutic foster kids. I had 60. In and 60. out. 60. Wow. 16? Yeah. 60. 60. 60, baby. 60. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We adopted nine, which would say 10, because my youngest son was adopted, my disabled sister's biological son. But so my husband, we got married in 97. And the next year, we adopted a sibling group of five. And the next year, we adopted a sibling group of four. We ended up nine. <laughs> but wow. I had did I was the youngest uh, foster parent in this area um back a long time ago I was like I think 23 and so then wow. when I was about 28 I started therapeutic foster care and yeah at 60. Tell me what therapeutic foster care is because I'm not sure okay um well you know what regular foster care is um therapeutic is the, a child that is looking at going Department of Youth Services or um, a higher departmental health facility, they would try to go put the child in therapeutic foster care first. And if it didn't work out, then they may go to one of those facilities. 
Okay. And that they, I got the worst of the worst. I got the hardest it's issues. Then the children had issues that needed to be addressed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And I absolutely loved it. I had no problems with any of the kids until our, we adopted and it wasn't right away. It was a few years later. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. That was a nightmare. Story. It was a nightmare. Because the last four we adopted come from a, a, a home, you know, kids sit on Sunday, Saturdays and, and watch cartoons and eat cereal. These kids watched porn and smoked pot and drank beer. Oh, my gosh. Oh my and when God. they come to our home, they fit right in. They blended just with our kids. They act like our kids and just did just fine. And they hit puberty. And... Wow. Their biological mom was contacting them behind our back. We didn't know at the time and telling them to lie about us. And we'd already filed charges on her before we adopted them as they are foster kids because one of them took a tape recorder from where I was a children's service worker, took my tape recorders, tape recorded her. It was a good thing they did because on that tape, she said that she's going to beat their ass all the way down that children's home hill where they had their visit if they didn't agree to lie on the Robinsons. Oh, wow. So she was busted on that, but we didn't know that after that she had got her phone number to the oldest one. And she was saying, lie on the Robinsons. You can come back here and I'll let you, let you date all the men you want. And they were compared. Her brother's the one that called and told me, he said, they're comparing the oldest one was 13. And her and her mom, biological mom, was comparing all the how many men they've been with. Oh my God. And and so they lied on us and just killed me. It killed me. Absolutely killed me. But anyway, so we adopted, we ended up adopt unadopting three of the nine. Her first. And then um one was severely mentally ill of the other group. The oldest of the other group was severely mentally ill. And um, her, all her doctors said she needed long-term locked residential. And our insurance maxed out after 100000 and wouldn't pay anymore. We had no choice to put her in state custody so they could pay. And then a few years later, uh, another one decided to pull what the first one did that was lying about us to hurt me. And so um, all three of them wanted unadopted. They were yeah. so ill. They won't. And so, you know, we let them go. But, oh, my God. Horrible, horrible, horrible. <laughs> Very sad. We, I wrote we about it in my book, but I didn't go in detail because they're children. I'm not blaming the children. There were children. You know, they come from bad homes. They didn't. I'm not blaming them. They didn't know any better. And I love them to death. They've apologized. And, you know, my God, we put you through hell. We did everything we could think of to you um it's the past but you know i've been we've been there for them whenever they need us the kids need us but it was really hard yeah ours weren't all ours were all kids from other countries and mexico and brazil and colombia and france and germany and oh serbia and yeah we just we had kids from all over the world and um so we actually had you know fun experiences with all of them and when we travel ourselves victor and i then we can, you know, 
look them up and visit them and you know write to them ahead of time and say that we're coming and meet them for dinner and we've done that quite a few times and visited the kids now that they're grown so they were all in their teens when they came here to stay with us so and we live right next to the high school so they could attend the high school and um you know be be here and be in a, in, in a u.s school and get a chance to do something cool and learn english really well and yeah stuff so it was all positive stuff for us so we didn't have those kind of issues we had fun we had we had wonderful for so long it's so wonderful but what compounded when we did start to have problems what compounded it is i used to be a children's services worker in this county and i made a lot of enemies oh. and there is a meg's county mafia where i live oh wow and um i mean i filed a case it went to united it went to ohio civil rights ohio civil rights bumped it up to united states health and human services and the secretary health and human services and they had it for five years i mean i got changes made but boy <laughs> i got some changes made they know who I am. <laughs> you probably they know who I am now. Probably ended up contributing some good stuff to the world. So at least your community, hopefully, with what happened with you. So maybe you got some changes made that were positive for others. And that's you know that's that's what we yeah. do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hard on us. It's very hard on us. But yes. I mean, somebody's sure. got to be the first to speak up and make the changes and they're not going to accept change quickly and easily they're going to go down fighting yeah yeah well i think ohio is a lot different than california it's totally true we're just it's just a different place out here we don't have that same kind of mafia or the you know the there's just such a blend of people here my husband was always commenting about when he went to high school how um accepted and loved uh, all the different colors were and um they just named the stadium at the high school right across the street from us after a, a wonderful family here, the Cunninghams, and their son was in, you know, NFL. In fact, I think three of their sons were in the NFL and they went through the football program here and they were all black children and um, they just named the whole stadium of the high school after this, this wonderful family. And I've got a lot of friends here that are like family to me that are of color. And I, I really appreciate being in an area where everybody is getting along really well and, and accepting each other. And I hope that never changes. I hope that my sons, they live uh, around Columbus, Ohio, and that's the way it is there. Yeah. yeah. Prejudice is non-existent. Yeah. It just doesn't. Yeah. And they would be, I mean, the first to pounce on anybody that would say anything against. But what's lovely about it is my ex's family, you know, family reunions are just right up the hill from me. And here comes two sons bringing a black child and they've been coming for years and they love them. And I got beat up by this family for being an N-word lover. I mean, beat up bad. And, and I mean, I went through it and now and one of this, my ex's sister, they adopted a Chinese girl at birth. And now she's like going to become a doctor or something. And so it's great. It's like we integrated this little hit. To, I'm sure there's neighbors that are probably prejudiced. My um, husband, now his family is very, very prejudiced. And I would go tooth and nail with them. His mom's passed. And his dad, he's got dementia. He's like hard to hear. But, but you know, progress doing your work to change the world one person at a time yeah 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 
And maybe okay. they don't need, maybe they need to change us. You know, we're, we're not all the all knowing. So <laughs> I learn something every day. Yep. That's right. People contribute to each other. Well, it's been so much fun to talk with you, Peggy, and it's just been a delight to get a chance to hear a lot of your stories as well. So I've enjoyed this whole time with you. You're a nice and wonderful person. Keep on Thank doing you. that good work, okay? Thank you. I used to have two Ains groups. Oh, you I started. Did. I started one here in Southeast Ohio, oh, and there was okay. never one down here before. And then um, Nancy Clark in Columbus, she had the second longest running Ains group when she retired. I went in and took over her group, but then COVID hit. So, oh, yeah. You know, yeah we haven't out. been meeting in person since COVID, but we've been doing the videos that we've had our speakers talk on videos. And then when COVID's over, we'll go back to meeting. We usually generally have about 100, 150 people that come to the meetings to talk and listen to the person who's our speaker. So, yeah, we've got a pretty good group here. We've been happy with it all yeah I used to go speak at the groups I was a Hawaii I was spoke at their group oh yep went over yep. there just to Maui to Susan Ward's group not was Susan it? Lisa Jones oh yeah Lisa Jones well Susan and Lisa Susan started the group Lisa Jones stepped in and then I think she might have a separate group now but yeah so. so Maui um group Lee, uh, Susan Ward used to actually live in Santa Barbara and she actually heard about IONS through my group in Santa Barbara, attended for many years, and then she moved to Maui to start the group over there. Sean so at that I group asked. called me here a couple months Sean, ago and we talked all day Sean long. Lether. Yeah, Sean <laughs> he's a great guy. Yeah, terrific guy. Yeah. So, well, okay, good. well, you enjoy your evening and thank you okay. for coming on. Thank you so much, Peggy, for inviting me. It was a delight to talk with you. If anybody ever wants to like, um, email me or anything they can email me at sunny like sunshine s-u-n-n-y s-b standing for santa barbara and then barbara so sunny s-b barbara at gmail.com and um, also i'm on facebook and i don't know other stuff but there's there's a facebook for my ions group and you can post things on there as well so um I hope everybody is going to take good care of each other and themselves. And I hope the world is going to be better each day. That's what I, I always. And I have about. a feeling that God healed your son. So you could write that book now. Yes, for sure. That's for sure. It's did I say that right? It's healed my your husband. husband. It's my husband. Did yeah. Right? Did I say yeah. son? It's okay. Did you I, said son, but it's okay. Did I say, I thought, did I just husband. say son? I do that. I mean, one thing okay. if something else comes out, but yeah, yes, your husband. Yeah. So, yeah. I, the big story was that he had, you know, cancer for 31 years. We went through tons of chemo and radiation and all sorts of other treatments. And then Stanford University up in Palo Alto, California, um, invited him to be part of a clinical study. And we spent two months up there at Stanford and he went through a stem cell transplant where they took DNA reprogrammed stem cells two doctors that were women invented the idea and they got Nobel prizes for the idea. And now they're applying them and they have cured sickle cell anemia with this process. And now they're trying it on cutaneous T cell lymphoma, which my husband has, and also large B cell lymphoma, which my husband has. And 16 days after they inserted the DNA, DNA reprogrammed stem cells, they could not detect any cancer left in my husband's body. Zero. It's gone. 
So after 31 years, all those treatments, millions of dollars worth of chemo, he is now cancer free. So we've had our miracle in my near death experience. And then we had our miracle now with his stem cell transplant. And I just want people to realize that you know, hang on to that hope and, you know, search for the solution that's going to work for you because there's nothing that can't be achieved in the world. I really feel that. And you guys have been married so, 27 years. So you've had this your whole marriage dealing with. Yeah. 20, 28 years coming okay. on 29 years. Actually. Oh, okay. My whole marriage, he, he's had cancer from before I even met him. He didn't know that he had it yet. It wasn't diagnosed yet until about two years into our marriage. And that's when we found out. And of course, we had a little baby and we had four other children. So all of a sudden, I sent up this big message to God and said, please, you know, can you please let him stay here with our children, and with me, and so the children can imprint on him throughout their lives. And please, please let him stay. And so here we are. 29 years later, he's still staying and now he doesn't have cancer anymore. So it couldn't have been a bigger miracle for our whole family and everybody that loves him. He's really a, a nice human being and a good, good person. And he helps and backs me up all the time with all the things that I do out here in the community and beyond. So um, we're, we, we, we just, we're lucky we found each other. We're lucky we have the lives we do. So that's where my husband is just totally supportive of everything I do. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. It's really wonderful to have somebody like that in your life. So girls search for that. Don't, don't settle for less. Okay. All right. That's my, that's my important information. My message for today. You had your list of a man. I just had Shania Twain song, any man of mine, like I burn a dinner and it burns a black or burn a black. Mm, I like it like that. You know, it's like, I want a man like that. That's what I got. Okay. On, this baby is all burnt to a crisp. I was specific down to the, yeah, everything. You got it. I had everything written down. So all, all right. right. Well, thank you. Well, take good care and love and hugs. Okay. Bye.